and peace from God our Father be yours this morning in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. As the kids make their way to class, I would like to invite uh, Aiden up here. We're going to start with a reading this morning. And I've asked him to lead us. I invite you all to listen to the word of the Lord. Can you guys hear? Okay. I'll be reading from Psalms 19 for the director of music, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the Lord. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. So this week, I was uh, in one of those coincidental conversations. I didn't plan for this, but this works out nicely. I was in a conversation with a young man who's a Kurdish Muslim. And once he learned sort of what I do and my vocation and that sort of thing, he was curious. He wanted to ask me some questions. And he was really curious about family life. And he said, do you have kids? I said, yeah, I've got two daughters and a son. And he said, do you, do, do you raise the girls and the boys differently? And I thought I knew sort of what he was asking about. Um, you know, I'm no expert on, on Middle Eastern cultures, but got a sense of what some of that di distinction would be about. And I said, yeah, I mean, there's there's probably some double standards there, but generally we try to sort of raise the girls to be as independent-minded and 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 um, and so on, you know, as the boys. And um, but but certainly, you know, there's some there's some differences. And he said, "Yeah, we raise our girls so different than we raise our boys." And uh, and he started listing things off, and he mentioned the dowry said our uh, our young men um, are not allowed to marry unless they can offer an acceptable dowry right and and I thought wow this is this is so interesting i mean the the world's apart you know and i said does that i said does that for the women does that feel like they're being bought like a price is being paid to have them. And he said, oh no, it's insurance. It's insurance. That money's theirs. And that way if their husband mistreats them, they have a safety net. And the only way that uh, the dowry can be paid is in gold because gold doesn't depreciate. 
when the economy when the economy tanks. And so it's this it's the safety system. It's so interesting, right? And it just so happened that I had been reading in Exodus 20, uh, 21, 22, where we'll be this morning. And, and I felt some of that same cultural distance. I thought, oh, this is, so, this is such a different way of seeing relationships and thinking about economics and, and financial safety. And, but, but it makes really good sense. I thought, you know, I can see where you're coming from on this, and I can see how your perspectives on this would be different. I want to invite you to have that kind of conversation with the Book of the Covenant that we'll be in for the next few weeks, because it's, it's different. Its assumptions, its cultural world is different than ours in some ways that actually are quite shocking. Let me just read you this little section. Uh, I'm kind of jumping ahead here into uh, 22.16 of the book of Exodus. But just to connect the dots with my, my little story, when a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. But if her father refuses to give her to him, he shall pay an amount equal to the bride price for virgins. Okay? Uh, not our world precisely, right? A little strange. Bride price sounds even worse than dowry. It's the same thing. But it kind of sets us on edge, you know? And when you start reading here, I mean, we're starting in, in 2022, um, and, you, and you go forward, we're reading about altar construction and slave abuse and livestock theft and bride prices. And the question that arises for me, I think maybe for some of you, is what are we to do with these strange laws? They confuse us, they discomfort us, they bore us. How can they, as Psalm 19 put it, revive our souls? The law of the Lord is perfect, says the psalmist. And it revives our souls. And that's what I want. I mean, as we read Exodus, it's a little bit easier in the narrative. We can put ourselves in that story and we can draw the connections to our own slavery, our own servitude, our own desperation. And we, we feel through that story, but then we come to these laws and we have a long section of ordinances. And they're ordinances that have almost entirely nothing to do with our way of life. And some of them are kind of offensive in their assumptions. So what do we do? With how, because, because I'm not saying how do we manage the problem. I'm saying how do we as the people of God hear the word of God so that it revives our souls. That's what we come to the Lord for. That's why we read scripture. That's what we're after. So that's the, that's the question that sort of guides me. As I pray the same words with which the psalm ends, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And here's the invitation this morning. It's meditation. Meditation of your heart. To listen intently and ponder deeply not to analyze or rationalize, not to scrutinize or compromise, not to speculate or deliberate, not to apply, not to deny, just to meditate, and then to celebrate. Because a voice speaks from Thick darkness. A voice speaks from thick darkness. 
and the possibility of a new way of life is born. The horizon of justice opens out before us. The contours of a royal priesthood take shape. The spoken word carves out a holy nation. But spoken by whom? I mean, this is the first most vital question. The spoken word carves out a holy nation. Spoken by whom? If we're to read these words in such a way that they revive our souls. Who is the God of Exodus? And so there's a little bit of reminding that we need to do here. Okay, brief pause. This is a lot. This is a big section. Next week is a big section. We're taking big bites out of this piece of Exodus called the Book of the Covenant. Uh, and so we're going to go at a pretty, pretty significant pace. Um, go to the next slide, please. It might help to follow along. Um, if you want on your on your on your phone, you can scan that QR code or just type in that URL, and, and you'll have the, sort of the outline uh, from this morning. But here's the question: Who is the God of Exodus that speaks these words? He's first. If you go to the next slide, the God who hears the cries back one of Israel. Oh, access denied. I'm sorry, guys. I'll fix it. You're just gonna have to listen for now, and then I'll fix it after. I'll fix it after the sermon. Okay. Here's the cries of Israel, and this is not a general principle. As though the way we deal with the difficulty of the law from our location in history is to pretend it's not historical. This is not simply the God who hears. This is the God who hears the cries of Israel in time and space. And Yahweh is the God who hears our cries because He is the God who heard the cry, their cries in time and space. So we read the law rightly now only by holding on to that particularity, that moment, that historical reality. Who speaks the law? The God who hears the cries of Israel in Egyptian slavery in the 13th century before Christ. That's who speaks this covenant. The God who hears the cries of Israel in the desperation of the dry wilderness northeast of Egypt. Who hears the cries of Israel in the terror of divine revelation at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's who speaks. And moreover, he's the God who set Israel free. And again, the story of Exodus, rather than abstraction, should guide our reading of the law. Yahweh is the God who liberated Abraham's children from slavery under Pharaoh in order to worship him. It's very specific. And Yahweh is the God who liberates us from slavery to sin and death to worship Him because He is the God who liberated Israel in that way at that time. Who speaks the law? The God who set Israel free from oppression that threatens the Abrahamic covenant by which all nations would be blessed. 
That oppression in Egypt threatened the promises of God to bless all nations through Israel. Those promises could not be fulfilled if he didn't set them free. He set Israel free from the threat of death by dehydration and starvation. He set Israel free from the cultural norms that shape Israel's understanding of justice. And that's where we focus when we come to the book of the covenant. Justice in regard to slaves. Justice in regard to retribution. Justice in regard to agrarian economics. This is transformative and therefore liberative. It sets them free from their Egyptian way of life. And the God who commissions these freed slaves to embody a new way of life is the God who speaks the covenant words. This is a covenant that makes sense in their time and place. It is not a break with the conditions of their reality. It is not an ideal society with no regard for culture and concrete circumstances. It is a radical and trans it is radical and it is transformative, but it is conceivable for these ancient Semitic people. It is the step toward the future that God has planned from eternity. Yahweh is the God who stoops down to make covenant with Israel in her cultural and situational particularity. And Yahweh is the God who calls us to new life in our cultural and situational particularity because he is the God who meets Israel where she is and calls her to become a priestly kingdom and a holy nation among the kingdoms and nations of the ancient Near East. Let me say that again. He calls them to become a priestly kingdom and a holy nation among the kingdoms and nations of the ancient Near East in space and time and culture and context. So to what end? Why? Why speak these words? Why give this law? Why make this covenant? What is the purpose of the law? Well, it is that becoming. To become a holy people is to be sanctified. Sanctification is, next slide, the transformation of God's people. It's the transformation of God's people. Liberated Israel is not yet a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. God didn't just say, and now you're this. Rather, he made a covenant and gave them law. Their calling is clear, but the path of sanctification is life in the covenant. More than a contract, the covenant is a relationship of mutual fidelity rooted in who God is. This is the relationship, a relationship with the God who hears us and the God who sets us free. That's the covenant. It's not just a contract. It's a, it's a different animal. More than an arrangement between a king and, a, and his vassal, it is a commitment to the purposes that lie beyond the law. See, the covenant aims Israel toward the blessing of the nations. What, what else would it mean to be a priestly kingdom if not a kingdom of priests who mediate between God and the other kingdoms? That's what they do. It's for the other nations, as it always was. And their commitment to those purposes, lies beyond the law. The law aims them at it, shapes them for it. 
So here's some really important characteristics of the covenant that does that transforming, sanctifying work. It's conditional. It's conditional sanctification. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. If. There's no guarantee here of sanctification. There is a mutual covenant. And Israel plays her part. If you obey. That's 19.5, 19.6. Covenant is transformative. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to Israel, the Israelites. You shall be. This is what we're going for. This is where you're headed. This is the transformation. And the covenant is voluntary. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had spoken, had commanded him. The people all answered as one. Did you hear that? The people all answered as one. Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. It's voluntary. They said yes to this process of transformation. The transformation of God's people is also social. The covenant is personal, but also corporate. Together we say yes to God. And together we make our lives as covenant members. Together. So Israel meets God together. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Together. And they live together. They will have a life together. That's what the covenant does. It shapes their shared life. Each Israelite is not a priest of King Yahweh individually, but a member of the royal priesthood. Each is not a holy citizen individually, but a member of God's holy nation. They live together in covenant. And that covenant is both vertical in relationship with God and horizontal in relationship with one another. They embody the justice of God in their social interactions. It's exactly what the covenant establishes. There's no room for individual salvation or private spirituality or solitary vocation. The covenant is us together. And social transformation is about justice. Justice. So we come to Exodus 21.1. And we read, These are the ordinances that you shall set before them. Ordinances. These are the mishpatim. Mishpat. Mishpat is justice. It's a twin with another word. They often occur together. Mishpat v'sedekah. Tzedekah is also justice. Both are often translated as justice or righteousness. One way to think about them is that tzedekah is the standard of justice and mishpat is the action that embodies it. And so when God comes and speak the, speaks the words of the covenant, he says, these are the mishpatim, these are the actions of justice that you shall set before them. So keep this in mind as we dive into the book of the covenant. This is about 
justice. This is about the transformation of Israel into a society characterized by justice. A life together in the covenant, in the togetherness between us, in the one another of Israel's life is the manifestation of the justice of God because of the book of the covenant. This is what it means to become a royal priesthood and a holy nation. It's very concrete in their time and place. And so perhaps a little strange to us, but powerfully transformative for them. But we have to read the book of the law in Christ. That's the other key piece of this for us who are assembled this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, who've participated in the body and blood of Christ, who have worshipped Jesus as Lord. There is no way for us to read the law otherwise. It's not a history text for us. It's not an an object of, of analysis. We could try to puzzle out what was happening back when. We read, praying, Lord God, revive our souls. Your law is perfect. And we pray in the name of Jesus. And so, we have to ask this question. How do we read the law in Christ? Well, first, the law, says Paul, was a tutor for Israel. In Christ, we understand that the law was a tutor. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3.24. Disciplinarian in that translation refers to this word that you probably will recognize, pedagogos, pedagogue, right? It's our teacher, our tutor, our instructor, our guide, disciplinarian. If it's a household tutor, someone hired to raise your children and teach them reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? That's what the law was, says Paul, for Israel. It's a tutor. And that's what I'm telling you. It's, it's, it's this, this transformative force. It's this thing that helps Israel grow up into the vocation of priesthood. And Christ is the, the end of the law. The end of the law. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now we got a real problem here. And that is that the word being translated as end is telos. Which doesn't mean end as in terminus. It means end as in perfect. Not perfect, uh, purpose, excuse me. Goal or purpose. So when we say, to what end, right? we ask the question, well, to what end? I already did that earlier. What, to what end does God speak these words? It's that. Christ is the purpose of the law, the goal of the law. Again, the law shaping Israel into what? Into Christ-likeness. That's what we want it to do for us when we read it. We want it to form us into the end of, that God has in mind for all of us. Sanctification, transformation. Christ is that sanctification. And so we look at Jesus and we know that whatever that law means, whatever the one about about your ox falling in a hole means, it's about us becoming like Jesus. Whatever that law about somebody sleeping with your virgin daughter means it's about us becoming like Jesus. Christ is the end of the law. It's what it's aiming Israel at. It's what it's aiming us at. And then the law is useful for life in Christ. 
useful. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is Greek, but if it were Hebrew, it would be for training in mishpat. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Well, that sounds like vocation to me. That sounds like the law making God's people capable of doing the things they need to do as a, as a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. It sounds like the work of ministry. And what you've got to keep in mind is when Paul wrote those words to Timothy, that's 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, when he writes those words to Timothy and he says, all scripture, guess what scripture is for Paul? Only the Old Testament. That's all there is. Like he's busy writing the new in the moment, right? It's not the New Testament yet. Nobody knew there was going to be a whole other set of writings. Everybody was surprised and it was great. At the moment, at the moment, all scripture is useful for the New Testament church, means the Old Testament, the book of the covenant, the law, this wild stuff about beating your slaves is useful for making us, the church of Jesus Christ, prepared for the work of ministry. So it's useful. Which means our question is, in view of God's character and purposes, how does the book of the covenant guide us toward Christ and equip us for new life? How does it do that? Well, I want to tell you two things to avoid and then look at a few passages from this large section rather than trying to read through all of it and, and talk about all of the ins and outs. It's a wonderful exercise, and I'm happy to talk with any of you about any of it. If you read it throughout the week and you're like, what in the world does that mean? I'd be really glad to talk with you about that. I know others would as well. Um, how does the Book of the Covenant guide us? Well, I'm going to tell you that, first of all, chronological snobbery is not the answer. Chronological snobbery, it sounds something like, they didn't know better, but we do. Oh, poor them, those underdeveloped backwards. Oh, it's so pitiful. Well, we know better now. That's not the answer. And I want you to understand that whenever we ask questions, these are good faith questions, but there's lurking behind these questions chronological snobbery. We say, well, why not just ban slavery? If you're going to tell the people what to do, you're going to say, obey these laws, law number one, no more slaves. Why not? I mean, we know better. Doesn't God know better? Why not ban capital punishment? I mean, Jesus is going to come along and say, forgive your enemies and love them. He's going to say, turn the other cheek. He's going to say, do no violence. So why doesn't God say, hey, Israel, you've got to forgive people and you can't kill them. No capital punishment. Why not forgive unconditionally? I mean, Jesus is going to come along and literally quote from this section, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and turn that over and say, but I say to you, right, forgive. So why doesn't God just go ahead and do it? Why does he wait? Why wait? If he could have just said, no retribution, you forgive. No retribution. These are not bad questions. They're important to ask, and it's really good to be honest that we have those questions, but just beware chronological snobbery. Don't, don't think to yourself, this is ridiculous because I already know better. That's no help. By the same token, cultural relativism is not the answer. Cultural relativism sounds something like, they did things their way, we do things our way. 
and that's an escape hatch when you read these sorts of texts. And you just go, oh, it doesn't have anything to do with us. That's how they did it. That's not how we do it. Right? In which case, it cannot revive your soul. In which case, it is not perfect and life-giving. It's not useful. It's not, it's not pointing us to the end that is Christ. And the truth is, God implicitly affirms these norms. God does. And God is the constant here. And so we can't just go, ah, I guess they did that. That's different. Because God is the one affirming these norms. And relativizing them makes them irrelevant for us. So we're not going to do that. Those are two approaches that we're not going to take as we read the law together, longing for transformation. Now let's read a bit of it. Let's read, first of all, 21, 1 through 11. These are the ordinance that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. But in the seventh, he shall go out a free person without debt. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out a free person. Then his master will bring him before God. He shall be brought to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave... When a man sells his daughter as a slave, do you feel that? She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt unfairly with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. And if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out without debt, without payment of money. I know that it doesn't feel like this goes far enough. And uh, we Westerners and we Americans in particular, we carry a lot of baggage. And when we hear the word slavery, it's a very specific thing. This is not that. And this is radically transformative. This is for a world in which the economics assumed a person's right to sell himself or his children into slavery in order to survive economically. The freedom to do that. We would call this indentured servitude. But the idea is simply that I'm in an economically desperate situation. There's no way for me to come up with the money. But my neighbor is wealthy enough to carry me. And rather than paying that money back, I will pay it with those years of service. So that at the end, I owe nothing and I've survived. It's a harsh world. It's a different world. The, the economics are, are hard for moderns to, to imagine, but that's what it is. This is among Israelites. And this is among Israelites who have just been set free from the oppression of slavery. 
You cannot forget that the God speaking these words is the God who hears the cries of Israel in slavery and sets them free. So God's not whiffing here, right? Missing the opportunity to abolish slavery for all time. God is stooping down into their situation and saying, you will not play this game by their rules. You will treat each other so well, you will be so good to your slaves that it is entirely conceivable that at the end of their indentured servitude, they would say, please don't make me go. That's a transformation. That's a different world. It's, an, it's not an economically different world. The assumptions about the way things work financially is the same. The, the harshness of the agrarian world uh, 3,000 years ago is what it is. But it's a transformation of the relationships. It's so just, this treatment of slaves. It's so just that someone would choose it in perpetuity. It's not permanent. Every seven years, they have to be set free. It's not abusive. They can marry and make their lives. They can't use the marriage clause as a way of bailing out a spouse before the seven years is up, because that would be unjust financially for the person who's carrying that debt. But altogether, it's a vision, a vision of, of this kind of servitude that's, that's totally different. That the world should look on and say, wow, we didn't know that our financial, economic reality could be reordered in this way. And it's... It's a transformation that protects women. These protections built in are astonishing. Uh, it doesn't protect them from slavery, right? And it doesn't protect them from the patriarchal system in which their fathers can decide their fates on behalf of their families. And you may feel that it doesn't go far enough. And I get it. But it is a radical transformation in which you cannot simply abuse and discard a woman who is in this economic position. And in which a woman in this economic position in certain circumstances would become a family member no longer a slave, but a family member, and in which a woman who is abused has the right before the law to walk away without paying the debt, to walk away with no debt at all. So, it's a radical transformation. I don't know about you, but the realist in me looks at our world and looks at the church's beliefs and the church's teachings and thinks, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to enact this. But it gives me hope. It gives me hope to see God work within the confines of their reality to change the world radically. To reach into a situation that you would think, there's just no way. There's just no way to, to fix this mess that, that Israel just got liberated from. And God says, no, no, no. If you obey my ordinances, if you act out my justice in these relationships, it'll be a totally different world. And it will show the nations what justice is.
Let's look at uh, 12 to 27. Whoever strikes a person mortally shall be put to death. If it was not premeditated but came about by an act of God, sorry, yeah, an act of God, then I will appoint for you a place to which the killer may flee. But if someone willfully attacks and kills another by treachery, you shall take the killer from my altar for execution. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Whoever kidnaps a person, whether that person has been sold or is still held in possession, in other words, kidnaps a slave, shall be put to death. Whoever curses father or mother shall be put to death. When, the individual, when individuals quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or fist so that the injured party, though not dead, is confined to bed, but recovers and walks around outside with the help of a staff, it's very specific, <laughs> then the assailant shall be free of liability except to pay for the loss of time and to arrange for full recovery. When the slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. But if the slave survives a day or two, there is no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. When people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judge, judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a slave owner strikes the eye of a male or female slave, destroying it, the owner shall let the slave go, a free person, to compensate for the eye. If the owner knocks out a tooth of a male or female slave, the slave shall be let go, a free person, to compensate for the tooth. This is a vision of reckoning that limits wrath. It limits wrath. You know, when Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, and, and you, you have in his teaching about the kingdom of God open up this whole new world in which there is no retribution but grace. That transformation is as radical as this transformation. From a world of catastrophic retaliation to a world in which the ordinances of the Lord teach Israel that you cannot punish someone disproportionate to what they've done. And that's what the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, burn for burn, lash for lash, that's what it is. It's a protection for the guilty. A protection that says, whatever you did, that's the extent of what can be done to you. And don't you think that's pretty important whenever one of the little case studies here is someone causes your child to be accidentally aborted? You know how many men would murder everybody on the scene for that crime? Right? I mean, our, our wrath, our anger is disproportionate to the harm done. And if, I mean, it feels proportionate even in some cases to just scorch the earth. But the law given to Israel says, no, you will do justice and no more. No wrath, 
no disproportionate punishment. You will judge. Judges will judge punishments. And you will be a people who acts out justice. That is transformation. That is becoming a holy nation. That's the law shaping Israel. Okay, well, I would love to, I would love to keep going and we could get into um, the uh, agrarian economics and all that. Uh, how to do justice with uh, your animals, like when you borrow your neighbor's donkey and so on. But, but it's the same idea, brothers and sisters. It's the same thing. This is life-giving because it shows us who God is and what God is at work for in Israel. We read the law, and, and even through its strangeness, we perceive God doing something in history that's unprecedented and powerful that, that gives us hope that Israel could be set free from the culture that shaped her as a slave and necessarily, therefore, as a master. Because how does Israel know how to treat slaves? What she learned from Egypt. How does Israel know how to do justice? What she learned from Pharaoh. The possibility of becoming something different is here in the law, in the ordinances, the just actions of the book of the covenant. So I want to end where we began. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. May the Lord give us wisdom, transform us, and make us into his priestly kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.